Imagine, if you will, a strange scene. You're a Malaysian tourist on a water rafting trip in the remote wilds of southern Thailand. Here are rolling hills, fast-flowing rocky rivers and dense low-hanging forests. The drone of the cicadas is ceaseless. Their only competition is the raging waters below your raft. It took hours to get here. The modern motorway became a narrow paved road, which then became a dirt road, until there was nothing left but a footpath. There are no guest houses here. As you hurtle down the stream, the forest is devoid of human life. The occasional exotic bird darts across the river. Your guide tells you that there are still bears and wild deer in these forests. As the stream slows to an ebb on a bend, you come across an unexpected sight. A horde of small children playing in the stream run to the banks. Their shouts ring out as they thrash through the water, beaming smiles on their faces. They're naked, their skin is black, their hair in afros. Sitting watching them play is a clutch of similarly black-skinned people, wearing dirty shorts, smoking banana leaf cigarettes. A very unfamiliar sight in Southeast Asia. Stranger still is a one white guy sitting among them, grinning maniacally. <laughs> that white guy is of course me, and let me tell you how hilarious it was to see the looks on the faces of those Malaysian tourists when they passed us, hence a maniacal grin. The people I was sitting with were the Mani, the last truly nomadic indigenous hunter-gatherers of Eurasia. The Mani are entirely unlike the Thais or Malays who have settled the area. The key distinction on the surface, of course, being their dark skin and afro hair. Genetically, they are far more closely related to the natives of the Andaman Islands, Papua New Guinea, or the Samang in Malaysia than they are the local Thais or Malays. More importantly though, their way of life runs entirely counter to those who farm, drive cars, utilize electricity, or even live indoors. The Mani people live as we all once did, without any of the trappings of modernity or even pre-modernity. They have no private property, supposedly no social hierarchies, and pretty much no formalized labor roles. For many anthropologists, they're the dream subject. For me, they were a good hang. Hi, so in this episode, we're going to be doing something a little different, as you may be able to tell. Uh, the past few have been very heavy on critical history, with little in the way of anecdotes or personal experiences. So I thought to maybe talk about my time with the Mani as, and kind of use it as a little break while also intersecting with many of the currents that we've been following throughout this series. That is to say, the life of illegally squatting forest dwellers, uh, land reform, and of course, the more explicit military aspects of counterinsurgency. As it was in these forests that both the Thai and the Malaysian Communist parties fled to 
during their respective insurgencies, bumping up alongside the many people. So today, I'll be focusing on my time with the Mani, trying in part to emphasize the beauty and tranquility of forest life, so as to hopefully get more of an understanding as to why forest dwellers are so reluctant to leave those lands, and use this story as something of a means of understanding the local conditions and the politico-social ecology that surrounds that place and time. So I was there on the riverbanks with the Mani and a Thai colleague, a friend on the initial introductory kind of trip for a documentary project which would eventually never come about. So I basically just spent a week hanging around with the Mani. Um, and I've always been quite hesitant, actually, when it comes to talking or writing about this time with them. I've mentioned the Mani in a few articles, but I've never published anything on them specifically. While I know a lot of people are very interested and curious about them, for me, all of the coverage I've seen of them before feels very voyeuristic and also fetishistic. And I really don't want to kind of add to that. So today I will talk about them, but I will also consciously leave a lot out. And so, with all of that out of the way, without further ado, let's take a walk with the Mani through the thick forests of Satun Trang, all the way into Patalung. So, let's get geographically and ecologically situated first, shall we? The area we were staying in is around where the Thai provinces of Satun, Trang and Patalung meet, known in Thai as the Sankala Kiri range. It extends all the way down the Malaysian peninsula, making up the spine of the region. In the far south of Thailand, a good way away from the touristic hubs of Phuket and Kabi, the area is one of the most densely forested in the country. But the past 40 to 50 years have seen a huge influx of plantation settlers into the area, as well as large amounts of state agricultural development funding. I could see this on the drive in from Songkhla. The motorway felt positively futuristic compared to what I was used to in the north and northeastern regions. And even after we left the motorway, the roads were shockingly well paved. I later found out that this was thanks to that agricultural development funding, which has led to all of those settlers moving in to grow banana, palm and rubber plantations that are cut straight out of the forest. I was also shocked by the scale and the kind of fecundness of the agriculture. It was far denser and more developed than I'm used to in the north. So those settler laws that I mentioned earlier, um, they were part of a series of land reform acts in the 1970s, 
which freed up large areas of forest for settlement. To put it more simply, if you clear it and develop it agriculturally over a period of time, you can get the deed to a piece of land. Actually, a Dindang comrade comes from a background like this in the south. Her family were poor urban dwellers in central Bangkok who moved to the south for that, you know, free real estate. And we'll get more into the politics of these settler programs a little later. So, you have this highway between Songkla and Satun, and along it, there are these new winding roads coming down from the mountains. And most of them eventually become dead ends and don't connect onwards to the next province on the other side of the mountain. Along these roads were also these kind of plantations, and behind them was the uncleared forest. We were staying in a village at the end of one of these roads. I just checked on Google Maps and the nearest village to it, as the crow flies, is around 10 kilometers. But to drive there, you'd have to travel over 100 kilometers around. In that sense, it's very similar to the soils of central Bangkok. This is also a classic counterinsurgency design. You can also look into the city layout of Paris for more on this, but essentially it prevents insurgents from using the roads to connect disparate villages, forcing them along these separated channels, which can be easily manned and patrolled by the military. So what I'm saying is, this area has not, you know, developed organically in a community agricultural sense, and it shows much like a succumbent and the soy is coming off it, you know. So, the village we were staying in was made up mostly of southern Thais. A surprising amount of young people too. A sign that the economy is pretty good there as compared to Isan and the north. We were staying at a local's house just by the river. Upstream were the Mani, not so far from the Malaysian border. Back in the 1960s, Malaysian communists fled over the border and established bases in these mountains. There, they were able to recruit from the Malay Thai populations. A few decades later, the Thai Communist Party were also active here in Patalung. The Thai state responded with that same carrot-and-stick approach that we've been investigating. The carrot was that state infrastructure, social services, and significantly for this region, land reform while the stick was of course a bombing campaign and the mass assassinations of local peasant activists. Today, there's nothing left to see in the area of the insurgency, and many locals in the village moved here to settle the land towards the end of the fight and after the communists had surrendered. We were introduced to the nearby Mani by anthropologists from Chulalongkorn University who had a long-standing connection with them. Though after an hour or two, the anthropologist headed back to Bangkok, leaving us alone with the money. To say that the group was wary of us would be an understatement. Like I said, this was just an initial probative kind of introductory trip. So what that means is we were just there to kind of say hi and see what would happen. Now, this money group was like all others, around 20 to 30 people living in a small clutch of around seven temporary huts. 
This particular spot was about 15 minutes off-road on a motorbike and then a short walk from the village. It's the closest a group ever comes to any village, actually. They had stuck two flags atop bamboo poles. A Thai flag and a yellow royalist flag were hanging off them. No wind to make them flap, that's for sure. This was an obvious optimistic sign of good faith towards the locals and the park rangers, as well as the border guard patrol police who keep a close eye on them. There are only around two to three hundred nomadic mani left in Thailand, so just meeting this group was around 10% of the population. We would stay with them for the next week, though we wouldn't sleep, uh, like spend the night at the camp, which we understood to be taboo. Instead, we spent the nights in the village and visited them throughout the day. Now, there were a lot of tricky cultural lines that we had to be careful of, but logistically the trickiest one for us was food. The adults in the group will not eat in front of outsiders, so we never ate together, and they never asked us to leave as well because, you know, that's also taboo. So we really had to read the social cues and make ourselves scarce. And thinking about it now, there's just so many of these kind of observations and cultural clashes that we have, but in the spirit of the show, I kind of want to focus on, well, I guess the hiking in a sense, and also the counterinsurgency. So I'm just going to skip ahead a bit. Our guide was Kai, or Speaker Kai. Speaker is like uh, his title, uh, in that he was like, he was a speaker of the group, the one who's designated as the communicator with outsiders. As far as I could tell, this was the only designated labor role that we could find. A speaker is someone who is considered articulate and a good representation, like a good representative of the group. It also helps that Kai can speak Thai, albeit in a very, very thick southern dialect. You know what, I'll actually pop a little bit of him talking now so you can hear his accent. So as a speaker, Kai is a little unusual in that he's a man. And we were told that all previous speakers of the group, as far back as anyone can remember, have been women. Like I said before, supposedly, according to the anthropologists at least, the group has no hierarchies, which really jibed against the local Thai people's conception of Kai. Everyone in the village knew him, but they would always refer to him with the same word, like village chief, Puyai Ban. But when Kai spoke to us, he used the term person who speaks in Thai you know, speaker. So this is something that the anthropologists were keen to impress on us, that Speaker Kai is not the leader, just the individual that represents the voice of the collective group. Speaker Kai is around five foot six, so about 170 centimeters. He's lean, muscly, and certainly not skinny. He wears old swimming shorts nearly every day, occasionally a t-shirt, no shoes, no flip-flops. Our trip deep into the forest was on day three of our visit. 
Kaya had yet to warm up to us at that point, and others in the group were very hesitant to speak to us outsiders, as Kaya was the designated speaker. I also got the impression that not many others in the group could speak Thai. Um, and I think it's important to say as well that honestly, it never felt as if Kai was guarding them from us or vice versa. Um, so we still felt pretty Greng Jai at that point. Like we felt like we were imposing. Um, and we set off early in the morning and it had really not been established what the plan was as well. Just like the Naipa, you know, go for a walk in the forest. As such, we were totally unprepared, but we'll get to that later. So we started walking down this narrow path in the forest, which the Thais in the village use themselves for foraging. Kai was in constant, like, foraging mode. His eyes were always darting up to the foliage, spending more time there than on the ground. We passed a shack with a small plantation area, one of those settler plantations. An ancient old Thai man shouted at us from a distance, like, Hey, where are you going? Like, hey, you know, and we're like, Oh, uncle, we're just going for a walk in the forest. And he's like, Tamaiwa. Like, why? Like, he was mad, like, pretty aggressive. And we're like, Oh, okay, bye, done. Like, oh, just going to walk. And we're shouting back, and like, we kind of just hurried on. And it's fair to say that the Thai locals and the Mani, don't have the best relationship. Remember I said the Mani don't have concept of private property, right? So, that, so like they, they forage in the forest. So imagine then if they should come across a whole field of delicious ripe bananas. Yeah. Soon the path bent round and came to a rocky river bank. From then onwards, there would be no path, just river bank and untamed forest. It was about this point that Kai really livened up. He started pointing out all kinds of leaves, insects, and evidence of mammals. You can eat this, this one, you know, it stops a headache. This one smells good, but you shouldn't eat it. You know, that kind of stuff. Um, also, he was like often pointing out stuff like, oh, this one, we collect it and we trade it with outsiders, but we don't use it ourselves, like stuff like that. He was pointing and picking at the undergrowth, like, pretty obviously excited. Like, we were having a great time too, and our energies kind of bounced off of one another. He had finally warmed up to us. At one point, my Thai friend was walking ahead of me on the stones at the riverbank, and I noticed his, like, his wet footprints on the rocks had kind of turned red. And I was like, mate, I think you're bleeding. And he, like, examined his feet to find several leech bites on his ankles. And I was wearing socks and shoes, thinking that I'd avoided them. And later when I took my shoes off, my socks were just covered in blood. And I found a very satisfied leech inside, engorged on my blood. Um, so on the walk, Kai was getting increasingly chatty, chatting to us about the north, about the jungle there. And I remember telling him that it's not as thick as down here and there aren't so many animals and there aren't any mani, of course. We asked him about his relationship with the Thai state and it was obvious that he had been kind of trained in the meta-language of Thai-ness. So he often referred to Thailand and like as like Meng Thai rather than Prathet Thai. 
and he said Ragnar Luong before, like a few times, like love the king. In fact, specifically, he said like Lao Ma Sheben Kon Thai Dewa Rao Ragnar Luong Mengan. You know, like we're not Thai, but we love the king just the same as Thais do. A phrase he had obviously learned and repeated numerous times. And this was still in the Ramayana era, by the way. So, he told us about when the group were kind of, well, were totally forcibly settled a decade ago. So Kai had been taken at first by the Lataban, the government. You know, like he didn't specify which arm of the government, nor did he specify what taken meant. I think it's important to kind of do this kind of close reading of vocabulary that he used. Because it kind of reveals a lot about how he relates not just to the state but to Thainess as well. So the specific word he used was like sent to Songkla City to learn about Thai. You know, not Thailand, Thainess, or Thai culture, just Thai. So this was stark because previously he had referred to all outsiders, be they Thai, Malaysian, or Westerners, as just. Outsiders, blanketly. In fact, it was clear that he made no distinction between me, a white person, and my Thai friend and the Thais in the village. And when I asked him what the difference between a mani and an outsider was, he said, "Like mani don't have anything like ID cards, household registers." He said, "Like mani are people of the forest, outsiders of the city." And by the city, it was clear, like. He's referring to any kind of permanently settled place, like a village or even a plantation house. I also distinctly remember him saying that Mani like have never written any books, and he said, "One good jam may die." Like we can't remember our birthdays, so or like their age even as well. So to use my own words, anyway, in Songkla when they sent him there. They taught him how to exist as a member of settled society, how to live indoors, how to use a toilet, how to cross the road, that kind of stuff. Oh, and another thing I need to point out is they don't really have a concept of time like we do, so they kind of have morning, afternoon, evening, and night, but not the time of day, like noon or two p.m. or whatever. They also don't have weeks or years or anything like that. Like it made questions like "How old are you?" and "What time shall we meet tomorrow?" Very tricky for Kai to answer, and I'm sure he'd been kind of taught about these concepts by the Thais, but certainly he didn't adopt it. As such, he couldn't really tell us how long he'd stayed in Songkla. Nan Mag, a long time, he said, when referring to that time, and also just. Generally, talking about the Thai state, he would often use the word "teach," like they want to teach us things, but we don't want to learn, you know, or we can't learn. Loudly and may die, something like that.、Um, so after Songkla, the group, so he was sent back to the group, which were then picked up by Thai forest rangers, I think, or maybe border guard police. Anyway, and they were settled. In a purpose-built village in Patalung Province, so there was a sort of induction period where a Thai government worker stayed with them to make sure they got settled in. I think this is my understanding of what he said.
A lot of this is, is somewhat reading the tea leaves just because of these conceptual differences. But anyway, as soon as like no one was really monitoring them anymore, I guess, the Mani group were gone back into the forest. And it seemed as if the pitch the Thai state had made for settled civilization hadn't been at all convincing to Kai or the rest of the group. At that moment, deep in the forest, seeing him in his element, it was obvious to see why. We had been walking for maybe an hour or two, and the sun was getting hot. We were starting to run low on water. Like I said, we came poorly prepared. Kai, of course, didn't travel with water. To demonstrate this, he took a big swig from the kind of murky river. I declined, attempting to explain how my digestive system wasn't adapted to drinking Satun River water. Now, when I say the forest was thick, I mean, like, really thick. You know, like, being totally off-path in a full rainforest is not easy. And it was either that or the rocky riverbank. And these were big, big rocks. Like, we were helping each other over the rocks. Cliffs, even, at some points. So we were in and out of the water, scaling the rocks and pushing through the forest. It was very fucking hard work. And like I said, we had very little water. And of course, Kai laughed at us as we increasingly struggled to keep up. Although I think we did pretty well, actually. He was also constantly like handing us these leaves and nuts and seeds and things to put in our bags. I really think he was having fun, and it was also clear that he absolutely knew where he was going the whole time, despite any lack of path or something. At one point, his face really lit up, and he reaches out into the bush and pulls out this bright red fig, and he split it in half and hands it to us, you know, beaming, and it was just sumptuous, delicious. So during our conversations, the one topic that kept coming up time and time again, as you would imagine, was deforestation. Oh, it's a very loud bird. Hmm. I'll keep going. So this deforestation topic was always accompanied by talking about the increasingly hostile Thai settlers and forest rangers or border guard police. When talking about the state, Kai had used the word Lataban, government, and Tamluad, police, interchangeably. The Mani's territory is shrinking exponentially. At this rate, Kai's children will have no choice but to accept the state's forced resettlement. Settled society and the Mani have run counter to one another ever since people began planting grains rather than hunting and foraging. Historically, slave raiders were the biggest threat to the Mani. They became known for being highly elusive, seldom seen by Thai eyes. Kai tells us when he was young, they never interacted with the locals, the local Thais. They had no clothes at all, and the villagers both feared them and resented them for it, he said. Today, this Mani group trades with the locals exchanging things like rare orchids and bushmeat for basic tools, knives, lighters and cooking pots. Despite our inquiries in the village, we couldn't determine what the rate of exchange is like. During the communist insurgencies, which ended in the late 1980s, the Mani were highly wary of the comrades, 
who supposedly unsuccessfully attempted to recruit them as scouts and forest guides. Bombing campaigns by the Thai Air Force hit the Mani hard. For decades, they had to disguise their campfires or live with no fire at all, a clear target for any passing bombers. Today, there are still unexploded ordinances in the jungle. When speaking about the bombs, Kai uses two words, the typical rabat, meaning bomb in Thai, and also kainok, bird eggs. It took us a moment to realize that the planes were the birds and the eggs the bombs. So much of the periphery of the Thai state has been literally shaped by counterinsurgency. In some senses, the periphery of this southern region is quite typical, like that of upcountry Isan and the north. However, what makes the south an atypical place today is a widespread reactionary sentiment found across almost the whole region. While the North and Isan typically lean left with a strong political memory of their anti-Bangkok heritage, the South is quite the opposite. Ever since the 90s, it has been a reliable source of reactionary right-wing ultra-royalist voters, famously for the Democrat, the Yellow Shirt Party, if you will. This was by no means always the case, and as the region was also once known for its peasant organizers and its insurgents. So for me, for many years, it was always quite a mystery as to why the South went so Salim, as we say, you know, slang for royalist. So this of course also excludes the Patani separatist region, obviously. Anyway, I once tried to write an article on this topic and I spoke to a bunch of southern friends and friends of friends to try and get a distinct answer. But there seemed to be no shared common narrative among them. But through their collective responses and a close reading of the agricultural history of the area, I think I have some kind of a speculative suggestion. And by the way, if anyone has any materials on this, please do send them my way, because I've not found a lot. So, when we look at the periphery regions of the Thai state in the 1960s, there are a lot of commonalities. That is to say, northern, Isan, and southern regions, uh, whereby, wherein rather, there were masses of landless peasants, little in the way of government infrastructure in rural areas, and tremendous poverty. It was these factors, as we discussed earlier, that led to mass peasant organizing and insurgency in all of the three regions. The Thai state's response was the same in all three, as we've discussed at length, the carrot and the stick, rural development and brutal crackdowns. Here I'm somewhat jumping ahead in the overall narrative of this series, but the insurgencies were finished by the 1980s. And this is where we see policies start to diverge regarding the regions. And this is a huge overview, so please don't get too mad at me if I miss anything. Or, I don't know, don't use enough uh, nuance for your taste. 
So in the northern region, after the insurgencies, we see investment in the form of opium eradication policies that we talked about in the last series, such as via the Royal Project. This is part of the general push to bring upland people into the Thai economy via agriculture. Developing agriculture in the hills, however, is tricky business. It's no easy task to clear fields on the side of steep mountains, and harder still to install irrigation. Not to mention that the soil is kind of so-so at best, requiring a lot of maintenance. Furthermore, many of the upland people are not Thai and still don't have Thai IDs, severely limiting any opportunities of land ownership. This extends to Thais as well, actually, as vast areas of the north, as we've discussed, were not incorporated into the Land Reform Acts of the 1970s and 80s. There remained rural lands in the form of national parks, meaning that farmers still can't claim that land through the settler process. Farm tenancy, too, remained very high in the paddy lands up north. Finally, big infrastructure projects like highways and rail or electrification and water upgrades were found wanting. All of these factors meant that resentment towards Bangkok never really left. And speaking from experience, where I live in the north, we have water and power cuts in my village nearly every week, and it is a fucking pain. Sometimes the water is cut off for days. Anyway, then to Isan, where the policy was more centered around urbanization, particularly in the vast plateau lands. Cities like Udon Thani, Ubon Ratchatani, and particularly Konken received huge urban infrastructure funding. Konken, of course, was the flagship project for this. The state built huge administrative offices, providing jobs for hundreds of thousands of aspirational would-be middle-class bureaucrats. Much of it was really make-work schemes, you know, um, as well as uh, state hospitals and the universities. Actually, this also happened in Chiang Mai and Chiang Rai as well. So for Isan, these projects were all focused on the urban areas, while little was done for the rural poor, other than providing them the opportunity to relocate to the cities. Ironically, many of those who did move to the developing Isan cities were already urban central Thais or Sino-Thai business owners from the central or Bangkok region. Again, for the rural poor, not a great deal changed. Millions of peasants were still landless and living with generational debt. The land too in Isan is famously not very good for planting. Routinely suffering from both drought and flooding with challenging soil, it's not easy to make the land blossom. It was these factors that, in large part, led to the success of Taksin Shinawat and his Tyrak Thai party, as we'll investigate in a later episode. Now finally, let's go back to the South. And what we see in the South is exactly what we saw on our drive up to see the Mani. Masses of plantations settled in the past 40 to 50 years. There are two key differentiating factors here, though. One is that the land in the south was freed up by the land reform policies. And two is that it's really fucking good land, good soil, good weather. Comparatively, you don't need huge amounts of labor or financial investment to get a plantation going like you would in the north. And you're not staring down the barrel of floods, droughts and weak soil like you are in Isan. 
This means that those southern settlers got their land ownership and were able to live a relatively comfortable life off of the land. I'm not saying that the southern peasants are rich, but they're a damn sight more stable than those in Isan or the north. Actually, I was talking to a farmer in the north recently um, about kind of farmer stereotypes, and she said that northerners perceive southern farmers to be wealthy, while those northerners they themselves are poor. Those southern farmers, knowingly or not, took part in this mass counterinsurgency movement and saw a significant improvement in their quality of life towards the end of and after the communist insurgencies, teaching them that playing along with the state gets results. There's also this um, parallel story of the southern democrat mafia as well, which I'm both unqualified to talk about and kind of scared to talk about even mentioning even mentioning it really but hey if anyone wants to get in touch and tell me some secrets do let me know anyway Let's get back to the hike, shall we? Okay. So I don't remember how long we had been hiking for at that point, but my bag was full of leaves and nuts and no water. We were scaling the steep river banks before we hit a cliff, around five meters high with a waterfall raging over it. An old tree trunk had been purposely lent against the rocks pointing upwards. It was soaking wet <laughs> from the waterfall spray, tilted at a gradient, just about gentle enough to climb. And if any of my friends who are listening right now, you know what an ardent tree climber I am, but this, this was too much for me. We all agreed that it was time to head back to the camp and pick up the hunting equipment before heading out again. My body was exhausted and dehydrated. My feet were covered in blood from all the leech bites but it was an experience that I'll cherish forever. Here, maybe I'm being overly sentimental again, but it was a great walk. So, we went back to our village house so that Kai could eat with the group away from us. And we were going to just, you know, wash up, rehydrate and head back out. And when we got back to the camp, but back to the village, sorry, in our the house we were staying in, which is this local guy who was putting us up, we... <laughs> We pull in and there's literally, I think, eight, maybe ten policemen, like cops, just like sitting there in the the sala, like the front area of the house. We're like, oh, fuck, <laughs> like in full uniform and stuff. And um, it like was pretty obvious to me what had happened immediately that that, you know, dickhead old. Thai settler man who was shouting at us in the forest had called the police on us. So <laughs> I guess word had gotten around the village that we were staying at that house. Anyway, so eight police officers came to check up on us. And I remember it so vividly because as soon as I saw them, I went into like, okay, 
play it cool mode, you know. So I go and I'm like, oh, สวัสดีครับ. ทุกคนเป็นยังไงบ้าง? Like, hey, what's up, everybody? What's going on? You know. And they're like, hey, hey, you know, we just we just came to check in, make sure they're you know they do that police thing where they're like, oh, we we came to make sure that you're okay. And I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and you know, I was so tired and shit. And um, I remember saying because I'm I'm still like a very perverted English man in that I, I carry tea like English tea with me whenever I go away on trips. And I said to them, like, "Oh, guys, I'm so tired. I, w- I was just about to make some tea, uh, English tea. Actually, does anyone want some?" And they're like, "Hmm, English tea." I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." They're like, "You mean like from England?" I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." Like, I, my dad sent it over. They're like, "Ooh." I'm like, "Okay, okay. Who wants tea? Like, come on, let me make you some tea." And um, a lot of the policemen are like, "Yeah, yeah, have some. I try some." And then some are like, "No, don't worry about it." So then, like, I start like conducting these police officers. Me and my friend, we're like, "Okay, if you want tea, put your hand up." Yep. Okay, that's one, two, three. Four. Okay, that's six teas. And okay, who wants milk with milk or without milk? I recommend with milk because it's like how we do it. So with milk, put your hand up. Okay, one, two, three. Four. Okay, cool, cool. And we just like <laughs> went and made tea for all these cops, and then. You know, come back, sit down with them, and I'm so fucking tired. I'm like, God damn this! And we're like super friendly, like, hey, yeah, yeah, English tea, blah blah blah. Oh, what football team do you support? You know, the classic, absolute classic. And we're like, oh yeah, I'm an Arsenal boy myself. You know, I'm from that area, blah blah blah. And and they're just like being super nice to us, being super chatty. And um, and then after a while, they're like, "Yeah, so we just wanted to make sure you were okay, you weren't lost in the forest. So what were you doing there?" And you know, I have my lines prepped from many years of this shit. I'm like, "Oh yeah, I'm a blogger. I write blogs, travel blogs, blah blah blah." And yeah, I gotta say, it worked very well. And um, yeah, that was one of the more fun. Uh, police harassment interactions I've had so uh, just to just kind of make clear like I think what they were really concerned about was any of these kind of like uh, pesky NGO human rights groups that maybe came to see how shittily the mani are being treated I think the Thai police especially in that area as well you have the Patani insurgency. So I think they're kind of always on the lookout for pesky Western NGOs, you know. <laughs> so, where were we? Right. So after a while, we were able to wash up, rehydrate, and then we headed back to the camp where Kai was waiting for us. And he was tinkering around with a blowgun with genuine poison tipped darts. Yeah, it's a real thing. They get the poison from this flower that grows elsewhere in the jungle. And when we asked just how poisonous the darts were, we were told that they were poison enough for a few to kill a bear. Kai spoke particularly proudly of that. So the blow dart gun was far longer than I kind of imagined. You know, it was nearly two meters of dry bamboo. It was very cumbersome, but 
Kai wielded it expertly. On his waist, he wore this kind of circular wooden container where the blow darts were stored. And I remember we sat around the camp for a few hours actually doing just nothing, waiting for Kai to give us a go-ahead. Children are one of the key animators of camp life. They outnumbered the adults around three to one. At first, they had been extremely wary of us, but now they were obsessed with their new friends. They were swinging off me and my friend like a jungle gym. One child in particular, who looked very poorly, took a real shine to us. He was extremely skinny. His nose was always running, and he kind of stumbled when he walked. While the Mani population is small, there are apparently virtually no birth defects ever seen before, Also, the anthropologist told us. Anything could have happened to this kid, such as catching a bad case of malaria as a baby, perhaps. The group vehemently refused to take part in any modern medicine or go to the village clinic, so I'm told anyway. And such infant mortality is high. The three-to-one child-to-adult ratio told us that a minority of these children would make it to adulthood. During these downtimes in the camp, we were able to observe the adults. I have to say, it seemed like mostly they just kind of lazed around under the shelters, whittling, smoking, keeping an eye on the fire, or sometimes weaving leaves. There was almost always a quiet kind of ongoing chatter, all in many language. We were starting to get worried that Kai had changed his mind. The anthropologists had told us that we were unlikely to be invited on a hunt. Finally, though, Kai gave us a go-ahead. We took nothing this time. We would have to be light on our feet, though Kai warned us in advance that the area around here was poor hunting grounds and we were unlikely to catch anything significant. We set off on a different route than before. This time we didn't chat. We walked silently. As we got deeper into the jungle, my friend had taken his shoes off while I still wore my blood-stained trainers. Kai scolded me in a friendly way saying that I'll be too loud. I took extreme care with each step not to crunch any twigs or dry leaves. This forest was slightly different to the other. There was less undergrowth and a taller foliage. Assumingly, it's easier to hunt with the blowgun in such an environment. It was almost silent under the deafening rings of the cicadas. Kai took long, inaudible steps, We tried to mimic them. His eyes were always focused on the foliage. Often he'd suddenly stop, listening intently and looking at the forest roof. Sometimes these stops would last several minutes, or maybe five or more. After an hour or two, he was obviously getting a little frustrated. I think because he was eager to show off his prowess with the blowgun, which we had been so interested in back at camp. Again he paused. We crouched. We heard the chip, 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 chip of a squirrel high up in the trees. Taking great care, Kai slowly and purposefully drew out the blowgun. He delicately positioned it through the undergrowth before reaching back to the poison darts on his hip, all without taking his eyes off of the chip, 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 chip sound. The whole process of positioning the shot took around three or four minutes, but it felt like an age. 
We sat there in silence, waiting for him to pull the trigger, or so to speak. The chip 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 kept going. Suddenly, cut. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we filmed it. Actually, I'm gonna cut in the sound right here. Kai turned back to us with a goofy smile on his face and pinched one of my cigarettes. We followed him up into some bushes, where he pulled out the limp carcass by the tail. He sat there a while, finishing his cigarette, fondling the dead animal, examining it closely. Then he decided it was time to head back for camp, as it wasn't a good day for hunting. As the camp came back into view, the children streamed to greet us. Their faces were white and grey, covered in fire ash, similar to Tanaka, but certainly more striking. They grabbed the squirrel to much delight and immediately rushed to one of the huts. They fought over who could hold it as they burnt the fur off over the fire. The older kids were more reserved and let the younger ones have at it. And by older here, I would guess like six or seven years old. A child of around maybe two or three was holding a large chopping knife longer than his own torso. When the squirrel's fur was deemed sufficiently burnt, he climbed on top of it and began scraping off the burnt fur with the knife. He had certainly done it before. An older woman was already by the fire and she kept a lackadaisical eye on them. The squirrel butchering developed into chaos. Different kids would grab the knife and the carcass off of one another and take turns. The younger ones would cry and the elders would instruct them to share. A plastic bag appeared. The squirrel was placed on top, the guts were opened up, and organs were placed alongside the fire in the ashes. When they were deemed ready, the kids gobbled them up in delight. Apparently, it was fine for children to eat in front of us outsiders. I really have to emphasize as well how much fun the kids were having, like they were loving it. And the purpose of killing the squirrel was obviously not for the food, but as a way for the children to learn how to prepare the meat. We could see the transfer of knowledge taking place. The older kids would demonstrate how to skin the legs, for example, and then pass it on to a younger one. This is how knowledge circulates and reproduces in the Mani group. There's a widely held theory of settler colonialism, which sees it as a kind of release valve. Just to briefly explain that, the idea is that, for example, the settler colonial projects, like those of, say, the British and the Dutch in the New World, were a means of resolving domestic socio-economic tensions by pushing them into new lands and markets. To put it more simply, if you're the second child of some mid-level British nobleman and you're not due to inherit any land and there is no new land available, this is an issue, a tension maybe. In the past, you might have to end up becoming a monk or something like that um, or even getting some boys together and starting a little civil war. But now you can go to the Americas and settle there where there's ample free land thus resolving that domestic tension. I'm using these terms in quotation marks as well, of course. Um, 
So this could also apply to those proto-proletarians stewing in the slums with no prospects. You can go on a boat to the new world and find your fortune. Again, dissolving that tension building up in those slums. Insulating the proto-capitalist class and landowning elites. This problem continued into the independent bourgeois settler Yankee state as they moved out west, manifesting their destiny at the cost of the indigenous people. More broadly speaking then, land seen as virgin is a means of resolving socio-economic tensions, as well as handily opening up new markets. So then, given what we've talked about today, I think it's quite easy to overlay that theory, that perspective, on top of the Thai context and see a lot of patterns. This way too we can get a little more payback on our previous investigative investment in Thai forestry practices. And this is a topic we will continue to investigate more deeply in our next episode. In short, a hundred years ago, the state claimed land that was never theirs as their own. Nearly a century later, when those tensions began to amount, they were able to give that land back, to open the release valve, and relieve those growing tensions. In the past, charities and local government officers have donated to the many, who they perceive as being poor, things like fruit baskets and medicines. Such gifts were always left behind at the camp, untouched, unneeded and unwanted. We asked Kai what, if anything, they did need. Space, he said. Space to live, land to live on, that's all. Implicit there was the end to the influx of plantation settlers. Something I suspect will never happen, as the Thai economy always needs that release valve to ease those pressures. Thank you.